Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast. Now, why do we call it philosophy? It's the combination of the words sales and philosophy put into one. Philosophy is a way of life that sales professionals and entrepreneurs practice with the purpose to make the world a better place from the customer's perspective. Today, I'm excited to welcome Yanni San Luis, who is from the Win Woman, and she helps forward-thinking nonprofits and corporate foundations maximize revenue, impact, and effectiveness. She is a seasoned rainmaker, a marketing professor, focuses on sectors like financial services, luxury retail and hospitality, nonprofits, and higher education. Yanni's also an author of an awesome book called Building Badassery, which I'm going to pick up and read. That sounds really awesome. Yanni, welcome. Is there anything else about yourself you'd like to tell our listeners? No, I think you've covered it all, Carlos. I really appreciate that bio. Sometimes it's kind of surreal when you hear somebody read your bio, but yes, uh, we're good to go. I think that covers it all. And in a nutshell, we'll dive into a little bit more of my experience um, as we go through uh, this podcast. Yeah, I tend to like overly prepare on your bio. So I like to see your face as I do it just to kind of make you feel uncomfortable. It's just like my life mission to make my guessing. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just super excited and grateful that you're here today to share about your knowledge, your experience and wisdom. And so let's get right to it. Today's theme I was thinking about, you know, in the space that you're in, which is nonprofit and you come from a sales background. I want to just kind of start is like, what got you into the nonprofit space? And if you don't mind just kind of sharing your story, I know that when we talked, we have a lot of similarities in, in our passion uh, for educating, for teaching processes that we learned early on in our careers around sales. And so I know that that was a space that you you practiced in, but then decided to hone in more into this industry. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I will say that for me as a kid, um, being a salesperson um, wasn't really a career trajectory that I had in mind. Um, it's kind of like when you when you go into a fundraiser role, it's not like you wanted to do that. I mean, I, I will say that I've been fundraising since I was five years old for the United Way. And yeah, I mean, that was something that was integrated into your in public school system. I went to school here in Miami, it was integrated into the public school system in the sense of fundraising, giving back, and you had to raise a hundred pennies from a hundred different people, which basically amounted to a dollar. But the point was to be able to go ahead and come up to people, talk to them about what you were raising money for. And the one that did it the fastest uh, got some kind of reward. And so I was very, as an only child, it was very rewards-based. I loved understanding that there was a goal, there was a metric, and then there was a reward associated to that goal. And so I think fundamentally that's where my sales journey started was, you know, my dad would asked me to compete against me and run, run to the dining race to the dining room for dinner. So it was very much competition and a reward at the end was very tied, which is what is tied to the profession, frankly, as, as it relates to bonuses and recognition. And so then, you know, later on in the career, what I really enjoyed doing the most was, um, cultivating relationships, right? Getting to know people, why I was very fascinated about human behavior, like how, why do people say the things that they do and what makes them do the things that they do, right? And I came at it from a point of curiosity. And so that's just kind of the fundamentals of where I, I landed in this, but I will say what 
kind of dropped me into the nonprofit space was on my end, I enjoyed extracurriculars, um, especially in high school and in college and things like that. In fact, I always wanted to make my extracurriculars my full job full-time job. And we did a lot of community service. And I thought, you know, a career in nonprofit would be fulfilling because at that time it would allow me to give back in a bigger way, right? Show people how to garner funds, show people how to raise revenue. I had a cousin once that told me, you know, what is it that you want to be? And uh, he's an older cousin. And I said, you know, I want to, I want to run my own nonprofit. He's like, you're never going to make money in that. Wow. And it's almost like, I was out to say, I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> I will make money in this and I'm going to show people how to make money. And so um, awesome. that's where it all started. Yeah. That is so cool. Like the first time I really heard of anyone saying like, if I could recall back to when I was less than 10 years old and I remembered yeah. like, these are some fundamental skills that you need in order to sell. Cause as kids, you know, that a lot of kids are given some of these little projects of selling chocolate bars or accomplishing some sort of goal and making it a competition. And then there's like a recognition and a reward. And you don't really think that these are some fundamental kind of life skills that help you develop things that are necessary in order to be successful. When you become an adult, it's very cool how, how your journey and, and also how you very early on knew that this was a, a cause or this was a space that you knew that you loved, you had a passion for, and you were able to pursue it. So kudos to you on that. That's really amazing. And so now you get to do this full time and you help nonprofits and corporations be able to, to achieve certain goals. I guess my question is when I think about nonprofits, I know that they have certain targets and metrics and something they need to accomplish so that uh, they satisfy its stakeholders. And so what are some of their top priorities and deliverables that they have to achieve? Yeah, so it's interesting because on the nonprofit side, what we're looking at right now, and especially when you're hiring like a firm like ours, right, to, to come in and, and add capacity, because at the end of the day, what ends up happening for nonprofit organizations depending on where they're at, either they're an older organization that might need some kind of overhaul on the processes because they have a very old CRM system mm -hmm. and that's where all their contracts are in, but they're not, maybe some of their donors are aging out or have uh, become deceased. And so how are you fostering relationships past that, right? And so if I were to give you top three things that nonprofits are looking for when they hire capacity builders or capacity firms like ours, number one is recurring revenue. What's happening is nonprofit organizations, just like in regular for-profit organizations, they got to make money somehow. I think people are misguided that think that nonprofit organizations every year, they have to zero out their account. And that's not true. Nonprofit organizations is just a tax code. It has nothing to do with running the way that they run business. Right? Wait a minute. You're telling me nonprofits need to make money this whole time I've been what? lied to? No, 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 no. And this conversation, <laughs> goodbye. No, just kidding. No, of course. That's it. Yeah. yeah, it's just a, it's literally a tax code and people, you know, assume that every, and like I, I get this uh, puzzled look sometimes where they're like, what, you mean that they can carry money the next year? Absolutely. It's not sustainable to, to right. be able to zero out your accounts every single year. And so I will say that number one, recurring revenue, right. And just like in for-profit businesses, 
the way that you diversify that revenue is going to be important, which is the second one. Recurring revenue, meaning, you know, how are you, a lot of organizations are highly dependent on one source of funding, whether it's government grants or private foundation grants, or maybe just corporations, they're highly dependent on one. And without that diversification, they are basically beholden and hold hostage in just really depending on one stream of revenue, which in business 101, you should be able to diversify the revenue, right? So creating recurring revenue is definitely one way that they're looking to yield our services. The second one is if they want to, they're highly dependent on one stream of revenue and they're Mm -hmm. looking to bridge out and figure out corporate, they're looking to figure out individual giving. And the last one I would say is that maybe they're bored, right? So they're actually their actual governing board of directors is become a little stale and they're looking to feed in more of an active working board. And they're really, you know, your board, especially for a nonprofit organization is highly, highly important. Just like for a corporation, they're going to be your influencers. They're going to be your ambassadors of the organizations, your strategic introducers. And so if they're needing to reorganize, overhaul those processes, those are the things that are top of mind. You know, the three times that people normally call on us, some uh, firm like ours. Yeah, that's a great recap of three really impactful places where you can really uh, make a difference in in consulting and make and helping them achieve their goals. And I think about the second one, which is diversification streams of revenue. It's just so comfortable when a nonprofit has done things the same way forever. It's just comfortable, but all of a sudden their cheese gets moved when their top donor or their top source of revenue just Mm -hmm. stops giving them the funding that they want. And all of a sudden everyone's hair is on fire and they don't know what they're going to do. And I remember because I come from banking. I used to do lending, commercial lending. And then yeah. one lesson that I learned when I used to do underwriting and looking at uh, small businesses to give them commercial loans, whether it's for a property or unsecured, what have you, there was this rule that we had from a risk management standpoint when we're giving out credit that's called concentration, which mm-hmm. means that if any small business's revenue had a one customer that represented more than 20%. And think about how conservative that is more than 20% of their overall revenue. Then we would have a concern about giving them credit because if their top customer was to leave them for a competitor, literally their revenues already go down by 20%, you know, you know, the rest of the story. So I always think about as a business consultant as well. And and I'm now I'm going to the space of helping businesses. When I ask them, who are your customers and how much revenue do they represent? You know, I've had customers that say, well, I've got these two customers. I'm like, well, what happens if one of them leaves you? Like, what do you do? Right. And being able to help, I'm guessing in your space, when you run into prospects and you ask them that question, you kind of leave them scratching their head a little bit, right? That's where you add value is being able to ask them these questions that no one's challenge them to think about, or I don't know what it's called, but I just recently made a video about this concept of helping your prospects by changing their perspective. Has anyone ever asked you a question that has changed your perspective? And what I mean by that is they gave you a what if, and you Mm -hmm. kind of thought about it and you, you kind of just paused and you said, you know what? I never really thought about that. And I'm sure that you've probably put your nonprofits on the spot by asking, well, what happens if you do X? So I guess thinking about sales skills and the importance of asking great questions, what are some of those key questions that you know that are like in your back pocket that you ask 
that makes mm-hmm. your prospects and your clients say, huh, I never really thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just kind of share with you um, an example. I just recently spoke to a nonprofit CEO and they're in the youth empowerment space and impacting uh, thousands of kids on a weekly basis and the way that they, they're going in and they're very highly dependent on government grants. And I'm having the, you know, at first glance when I was sharing with the CEO, like, you know, just kind of understanding their needs and things like that. They had a very, what I would like to say, an arrogant perspective of, well, you know what, the state will never not fund youth programming. And I was like, was like, oh, okay, so let me ask you, as we're heading into major banks and a number of organizations have, have already predicted, right, that, you know, there is a recession that's going to come up. And I will tell you, I was a fundraiser in 2008. It was not a fun time, but I had lots of learning lessons from that time of what to do and how to prepare. And I said, well, what happens when uh, the state has to pivot in the way that this person funds? Or they're saying, you know what? Thank you so much for thousands of, of kids that you're impacting, but we're going to need a fraction of that. What then? Right. And she was like, well, it's just not even a possibility. I just don't think that they have it in them. And it's like, well, are you really playing a game of chicken with the state and the funding or do you want to be prepared? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, it's like, are you playing that game or you want to be prepared? And so those are the type of things is like also being one if it's in a good way, I feel like the part of part of the way that you ask questions is, you know, it's okay to be contrarian. It's okay. It's okay to also be like, go toe to toe and say, well, if this didn't exist, then what, right? What's that? And it's also about thinking through vision wise. I think we talk a lot about, you know, especially on business side, because I've I've been part of the small business community for a long time. And it's interesting. It's like, what is your exit plan? What is the legacy? Especially that legacy is a big word that we use in the nonprofit space and mm-hmm. the philanthropy mm-hmm. space. So understanding that question, what is the legacy you want to leave? And are you looking to run yourself to the ground in being able to just hold up this organization up until a certain point what's your exit strategy here how do you want to uh, build that out for your team or for the future and so if you if you notice the type of questions that i ask are how and what questions right how and what questions are questions that lead a little bit more in depth Hey everyone, in this conversation with Yanni, we talk about in the first part how important it is to ask key questions so that you can uncover unperceived needs. In the next section, Yanni's going to actually talk about how to negotiate like a boss, how to set some boundaries, and why saying no can actually build better relationships. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I'm a big fan of Chris Voss, who is yes. a uh, FBI hostage negotiator. I will tell you, negotiation made me a better salesperson, made me a better fundraiser, and owning in on those skills made me that. And really understanding tactical empathy, really understanding the perspective on the other side of the table versus jamming down someone's throat, your own, like why you should work with me and everything else. Like I come into sales meetings and I don't pitch. I ask questions and we asking questions versus me running through like a 19 slide deck. And at the end, everybody's just like fire hose effect doesn't even want to like 
like they're glazing over, right? And so how and what questions dive a little bit deeper and that tactical empathy of coming from a place of understanding really is the, the impact there yeah. as far as the sales secret. Yeah, there's this quote that I read in another book. It says, you have to sell the way people want to buy, not the way you want to sell. And mm -hmm. to, to your point around tactical empathy, you just have to understand their perspective, their world view. And you're sharing so many great points specifically around asking the right open-ended questions, how and what. And it almost sounds like, and I'm guessing in the culture of nonprofit, I don't want to mm -hmm. assume, but I want to confirm this with you is, do you feel like just because maybe the nonprofit culture, it's somebody else's money and not their own, that maybe there's a little bit of a status quo, especially with the board's culture. Cause you talked about one of the biggest things that you have to go out there and do is help the board Maybe they're, I don't want to say out of touch, but maybe modernize, you know, their mm -hmm. way of thinking or disrupt mm -hmm. the status quo. Because people don't, you know, they're very resistant to change. The human condition is just resistant to change. Status quo is like things are good the way they are. I'm comfortable. And then, you know, they, they hire you, maybe someone who brings perspective from how to keep up with the market trends, how to keep up with technology and ways to operate on a more efficient level. What you're doing is you're disrupting their status quo before that top donor does it for them. And then it's already too late. That's the importance of where you come in. I wanted to transition over to some stats that you posted on your social that talks about some, some of the biggest impacts when it comes to corporate responsibility. So these are you helping for-profit organizations and what's in it for them, right? The WIFM. And mm -hmm. I see that it, some of the things that it impacts on the bottom line, it, it increases employee engagement by 4%. It helps with reputational value by 11%. Productivity goes up by 13% and 20% increase in revenue. How does that land on, you know, when you get in front of those type of clients? Right. So I'll, I'll share with you a lot. So we have our nonprofit arm, and then we have our, our CSR, corporate social responsibility. In some companies, it's based out of ESG, so environmental, social, and governance, where we focus on the S and the G. And so here's the thing about CSR, right? And I'm going to just kind of debunk a myth about CSR real quick, because I think as small business owners, a lot of people think that you have to be a big business in order to implement CSR techniques and implement mm. social change and social responsibility. And I will share with you that small business can benefit from having some kind of method of what they're tracking as CSR wise, because I will tell you the pressures. Now there's two things, right? There is for publicly traded companies, there are pressures from their shareholders, there are pressure from their investment houses that require them at bare minimum to how are they auditing their supply chain? How are they complying? Like just regular you know, you say regular, but sometimes you, these are just standard operating procedures of, sure. you know, are you supporting human slavery, right? Oh Across the board. Like, you know, these are the things that you have to almost showcase the way that you are preventing the way that you are taking uh, special care. If you are using subcontractors, you know, how are you diversifying the, the supply chain? So there's so many ways to really impact. Now I will say on the corporate social responsibility, what we do is is really help position, but more importantly, help track those metrics. So you might have seen a long, I would say CSR has been around for years and years, 
However, I think it started coming back up to people's forefront um, at the diversity tipping point of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. What ended up happening there was that you had these big commitments from corporations of this is how we're going to diversify our board. This is how we're going to do these things, right? These are the amount of millions of dollars that we're going to commit to Black-owned business or Latin-owned right. business or whatever. But my whole thing was, well, how are you tracking that? What methodology within your current CRM system is, is proving in a transparent way the progress that you've been made is you made these beautiful statements, but how is it that you're going to be accountable to your, your stakeholders, to the people out there? So that's where we come in and helping position and track and ensuring that it's done in a transparent way for their stakeholders. So that's one. I think the second piece that I will say about small business and it's never too early to implement CSR. It's a way of actually scaling your business, CSR and implementation of that, because as you're getting into government contracts, but more importantly, as you're going to the B2B sector, especially when you're doing and you're responding to these RFPs, requests for proposals, they're going to ask you, what is your diversity statement? What is your methodology on your supply chain? How do you deal with your vendorization? Do you, what's your composition of your company look like as, as far as percentage of board of directors versus mm -hmm. your employees? And a lot of times what, what I have found, especially on the small business side that contract us for this is holy crap, we don't have any of this in place. Um, right. I want to go after this bid, but we don't have anything of this in place. And they're asking even me to track it. How do we even start for that? So that's why I mean, like, especially when you're looking to scale on the small business side, that's something that you can, that's a technique of scaling to be able to one, also feel good about the work that you're doing and give back, but two, to actually promote the culture. Like buyers are getting smarter now, Carlos. They're getting smarter yeah. of yeah. where they're sourcing their products, where they're sourcing information. And if it's too difficult to find, they're going to go to the next competitor that is doing the ethical, the right thing um, to be able to buy the products and services that they want. What I'm hearing from you is that, you know, the value you bring is that they're coming to you to help them think for them and more having the foresight that they don't know they need rather than waiting for that moment where if they're going to scale, they're about to land a big opportunity. And all of a sudden they say, Hey, here's a checklist of all the things I need you to meet in order for us to work together. Because as corporations or small businesses start becoming bigger and they want to start dealing with larger, there are commitments from a CSR standpoint that these corporations that want to meet. And there are advantages to diversifying your team to, you know, bringing uh, these elements into a space where it gives you some upside you know advantages and so that's huge and i learned a lot uh, about that space today especially you bringing to light that even if you're a small business you should engage in, into this uh, work because it exposes you to greater opportunities and being ahead of it you know i i know that this is where you and i met right if you think about it like i just volunteered i decided to do things to impact the community because I see the value of volunteering my time and knowledge and expertise to helping small businesses. And because of that, I, I've had one of the biggest gains, which is earning a friendship with you and, and a, a professional relationship. I could see small businesses when they bring their team, whether you have a team of five or a team of 10 or what have you, and you sponsor a little league team or you, you know, right. you go out to feed the hungry or you, whatever impact or social cause you want to, first of all, I think 
the employees of that organization are going to feel more loyal to knowing that mm -hmm. when they show up to work, they don't just show up to a place from nine to five, but they know they're also right. making a difference in their community that they live in. And they're working for a company that stands for something beyond just, hey, we're just going to make some money and you're going to show right, up right, and right. get the job done. Uh, right. So that's that's wonderful. Th thanks for bringing that to light. And uh, I think it's a, it's a big takeaway to inspire small businesses to get into that mm -hmm. space. I yeah. want to shift to a couple of quotes that okay. I stole from you. There are three quotes. I'm not going to dive deep into all of them. But the one that I love the most, and which I think is sort of helping others uh, understand how to be firm on learning when to say no. I think oftentimes there are boundaries that we don't know how to set in this in the space of of selling, right? Sometimes we mm -hmm. want we are out there, we're eager to please, we want to wow our customers and we we give more than we ask for in return just because right. we, you know, that'll earn us some trust points or relationship points and one of the quotes is when you say no, explain why you're saying no. So the other person can understand your perspective. And I want to see if you can dive deep to what inspired you to kind of say, I need to publicize this because of, you know, maybe you ran into experiences that you've learned some lessons from. Absolutely. So I, I, I want to be, I want to just, you know, put a star around what I said in the context of business, because I want to also understand, because people kind of can misconstrue that um, very much in a sense of no as a full sentence and, you know, in, in other types of arenas, you know, you don't need to get an explanation, right? But in the course of business and as it relates to, um, as it relates to sales and as it relates to what that looks like, it's a matter of understand it's educating but also almost empowering the other person that it's okay to take a step back and it's okay to to have their own boundaries so i'll give you an example when you're along the prospect line or your sales cycle right maybe you're feeling good you're having like you know you have a very much a good relationship with the prospect maybe you're in the negotiation phase right and what it feels like when you're in this phase a lot is sometimes it can feel that they're maybe they've canceled the meeting and you reschedule and they cancel the meeting and then you reschedule. Oh, I'm sure yeah. everybody that has been in this in sales and any business owner mm -hmm. who is the who serves as the head salesperson anyway in the organization feels like they're dragging their feet, they're dragging you along. You're you also feel like this sense of um, like, did I misread this? Did I not like get this correctly? And I, I encourage you in the sense of, and sometimes you even have put a number of resources behind, you know, all this time, right? Like that you've like yes. cultivated the relationship there. And it's interesting because Chris Boss tells you about like the counterfeit yes that people can give you, right? Mm -hmm. um, they'll say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then they don't follow it up with confirmation. And I think you've done such a spectacular job. I know in, in our short time knowing each other of like, after every meeting, what's the next conversation, yeah. the next booked conversation. But when you have a next book conversation and they start canceling several times, it could feel like really the feeling is that they are no longer interested or they were just kind of like dragging you along. And that was just, yeah. you know, th these are all the things that happen. So 
What I mean by saying no is number one, you have to make a conscious decision as a business owner, as, a, as it relates to that, where you are, how much time has it taken you for this lead? And is it mm -hmm. really worth you going to chase it further, right? How much is it worth of your team's time? How, what, like, what are the economies of scale here? As, you know what I mean? This yeah, what is the cost of investing so much time and in, in dwelling and, and just being obsessed with it? And there's this thing about not taking it personal. Too. I think I, what I've learned about that yeah. is not taking it personal. Like I know that there's also a lot of things on the other side you might not know that are happening. And I'm going to actually share a story about us that you might not know about, but, and I wasn't mad or anything, but I know that when we first tried to connect, Mm -hmm. I think that we rescheduled several times. Yeah. And yeah. Usually yeah. when I, when I get that, it's a sign that maybe the other side is just not engaged, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. or maybe mm -hmm. something else is going on, but I'm not going to take it personally. And mm -hmm. I do this thing where I don't mean to cause any type of conflict, but I, but I am kind of setting the boundary and right. I did this with you and, and you came back and, and I kind of just let it go. Right. Where, I wanted to connect with you. I wanted to connect with you. I've been chasing you to do this podcast for yeah. quite a while. And, yeah. and there was a moment where I wrote to you, I think for like a third time, I texted you, I wrote you and I didn't hear from you. And it's been like over a month. I mean, it wasn't like, like, yeah. you know, you didn't call me within, within an hour. We're not, sure, not, sure. It's not that, that intense, but you know, right. in the third contact, I said, Hey, we had a recurring calendar invite. That was our agreement. And right. at one point, you didn't, you rescheduled twice or your, your assistant yeah. rescheduled twice. Yeah. And I go, Hey, I see that, you know, this might not be a priority for you at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, no hard feelings. I'll just cancel this and we'll just connect whenever we can. And I kind of just did right. that. And I do this with, with everyone who I already mm -hmm. sensing like a strike one strike two, you know what? I'm going to do the strike three. You're not going to do it. And, right, uh, right, right. and then you went MIA and then you came back and you told me, Hey, I had this major issue happened. And I'm like, yeah. oh my God, I'm so sorry I didn't hear. I had no idea. So sometimes sure. I think people all don't mean to, you know, say no to you. But we of start course. playing stories in our head. But to your Agreed. point, yes, these tentative people, these tentative people, like those are the worst. And I think in that same book, Chris Voss talks about no is actually not a bad thing when a customer is telling you no. What they're just saying right. is try again. You have another life. Correct. Try again. But Correct. I I prefer a no than someone who's like, let me think about it. Send me oh information, yes, you know, like course. when they give you that tentative crap. Absolutely. So. And I, and so to your point, that's exactly where I say no is the boundary, right? The way that you responded, right? The way, even in our situation, the way that you responded and say, Hey, it seems like this is not a priority at this time. I'm going to go ahead and cancel the remainder of the things and, um, we'll connect when, when it's possible. Right. Um, that is taking control, right? That is saying no, that is setting the boundary saying like, I'm not going to be, you know, just dragged along and I'm not going to let continue to be hopeful and be kind of like diminished, right? That is the way that you set a boundary. Um, I will also say that a way, you know, these people come back, right? There's times that there is opportunities, right? So I feel like I, I definitely redeem myself. I hope in any way that I <laughs> redeem myself did. with you. Yeah. Um, but I will say that a lot of times, you know, with prospective clients, um, especially in this market, sometimes I know I'm very much speaking to the business owner that is listening to this podcast after we've, you know, after you've released it is if you have clients that are coming back, especially now in this market with what we're looming over a temporary recession, what you want to do is, hey, whatever you 
quoted three months ago, two months ago, might not be the same rate anymore. And you've yes. got to be able to say, when we talked, it's been X amount of time. Our team has reconfigured yep. and, you know, things have, things changed. have cost. Things have changed since that. Yeah. Or I'm happy to walk you through what's the next step. And so yeah. that's another negotiation tactic, that loss yeah. aversion, right? Hey, I'm going to do this for you now, but only if you do it by this date, I'll do it at this much. I can't guarantee you that, you know, next month or next two weeks, it, this is something I can guarantee. So Yanni, it's been awesome sharing some incredible insights and, you know, knowledge and expertise in a, in a space that I've always been curious about. And I think our listeners will be very impressed and they will walk away with a lot of uh, deliverables that they can implement into any universal space, whether it's sales, communication, relationship building. And so lastly, how can people get in touch with you? Awesome, though. Thanks for that. So you can get in touch with me there. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so you can follow me on LinkedIn, Yanin San Luis, or on um, Instagram. I'm at the win woman and you can totally you know, slip into the DMs or send me a private message and we can help you get taken care of. Uh, my website is thewinwoman.com. Awesome. And I will make sure to put those details also in the show notes. And again, super awesome that we got a chance to connect and talk about our favorite subject, which is just helping customers thrive, whether they are for-profit or non-profit. It doesn't matter. We're here to build relationships and make a positive impact in the world. So Yanni, thanks for, for coming on and thank you everyone for listening in. And until next time.